0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. (laughs) Multi-award-winning author Alan Baxter can teach you how to write, he can teach you how to fight, and he can teach you how to write the fight right. And before this sounds like a Dr. Seuss adventure, we should make it clear just how uncompromising Alan's supernatural thrillers and urban horror stories truly are, so much so that his mother-in-law once asked why he had to write such horrible things. But there's obviously much more to the author sitting before me today. Alan is also an international master of Kung Fu, a pursuit which has sustained him since his earliest years growing up in the south of England. With an understanding of what it feels like to take a blow to the solar plexus, Alan has brought a vivid reality to his impossible tales of dark violence, all the while still keeping his readers delightfully on edge and unlocking doors that should never be opened. Hello, Alan, and thank you for joining me.
1: Hello. What a fantastic introduction.
0: (laughs) Alan, your love of storytelling seemed to start at a young age and I'm speaking and thinking specifically of a moment when you were seven in primary <laughs> school and the kids in your class were asked to write a story about what they did on their holidays. What did you write about? Uh,
1: yes, yeah, it was half term, so it was a one-week holiday and the teacher said to us, Uh, while you're away I want you to write a little story about what you did that we can read when we come back and so all the kids came back with a paragraph I went to my nana's house and all that sort of stuff Uh, and I wrote something like seven a four pages about a guy who goes back in time and fights dinosaurs and has all kinds of mad adventures Um, and I don't know why it's just because I love telling stories and I decided that you know instead of sitting at home and playing in the garden and writing about that I'd write about something a bit more interesting
0: and was that the first time you really saw how you could influence an audience?
1: Well, yeah, it was interesting because the teacher looked at this um, and apparently because um, we handed these things in like on the monday after the after the school holiday. And the teacher just took them in to mark them. And apparently, unbeknownst to me, she'd actually um, subsequently rung my parents and said, why did you sit down and like do this huge story with your son? Is there any reason for that? And my parents said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> um, because it was just me shut away, as I do to this day, just sit shut away quietly in a room and make shit up. Um, and so the teacher came back to me and said, look, this is amazing. It's not the task that you were set, but this is a pretty ridiculous thing you've handed in can you read it to the class? And I was terrified by that. I like to write the stories. I didn't want to sit there and read them. Um, So, And I still remember this day. I was in short trousers, my knees were shaking, and I was hoping that the other kids couldn't see my knees shaking because I was standing in front of the class holding these pages and reading it. But then about halfway through, I sort of saw, glanced up and saw the other faces, and all the kids were just sitting there staring at me with this rapt attention. And it was like, holy crap, look at the power of this. And it was, you know, it was a seven-year-old story, but there were other seven-year-olds that were listening to it, I guess. So, um, yeah, and so that was my first kind of example of the power of storytelling, of what I could do if I wrote a story, the fact that it could literally affect other people. Because I'd always been a reader. I've loved reading. By seven, I was reading at sort of, you know, age of ten kind of level. You know, I was always been advanced in reading because I loved it so much and my parents encouraged it. But I'd never really considered... That something I wrote could have an effect on other people the same way as what other people wrote had an effect on me, and that was that was the first time I remember seeing that. It was the first kind of yeah successful story. I guess
0: <laughs> you loved English, but you were quite a disaffected student.
1: Yeah, I was rubbish at school. I didn't. I hated school. I well, that, it's not yeah, it's not really fair to say I hated school so much. I was bullied a lot in school, which didn't help because I was a nerdy kid. Um, but I had really good friends in school and I had a really good time with my friends. I enjoyed being around them, but I just wasn't any good at studying and being told what to do and being told what to study and then being tested on it and stuff like that. So academically, never been that sort of, it's not necessarily a case of being gifted, but I've just never been particularly inclined that way. I, since I quit school, so I, in in England at the time, you used to do your O levels at 16 and then your A levels at 18, which is a bit like the school certificate and then the HSC. Um, And to do A-levels you have to get at least four O-levels. So at 16 I did my O-levels and fucked up most everything. I passed English uh, language and English literature no problem and that was it. So I didn't have four O-levels. So I went back for a year in sixth form college, but effectively doing the previous year again in order to get more O-levels. And I did get two more O-levels and I ended up with four, but by that point uh, I was just over it, and all I, I was into martial arts by that time, fighting in competition. All I wanted to do was train and and you know do the things I liked. I was over school, so I quit and got a job. And I've probably taught myself more since that day than I ever did, you know, in school because I have a love of learning. I just have a sort of loathing of school. <laughs>
0: What was it that brought you to martial arts? Was it the uh, the Monkey TV show?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Was well, that's no, not specifically. That's what brought me to kung fu. Um, when, I, like I said before, I was I was bullied in school. I was a nerdy kid. I hang around with nerdy friends. I was never a jock or a, or a big guy or anything like that when I was in school. We used to get hassled a lot. Um, and after coming home one day, upset again that I'd been pushed around or whatever, uh, my dad suggested I do something to make me better able to cope with it and when he'd been going through high school and in his early 20s my dad was a rugby player he played rugby union um, until a back injury in his early 30s put him out of it but he was also really keen in judo when he was younger um, and so that's what he knew and so he said why don't you try and do something maybe learn judo and then someone's pushing you around you can throw him on the floor and walk away which i thought was actually a pretty spectacular idea so we looked around and in the local community center we found a guy teaching a judo class once a week Uh, And I started doing that, so that was my first martial art. Um, And I really enjoyed it. And for a couple of years, I did judo. And then one day, the uh, teacher came along and said, look, I'm moving away, I'm going to a different town or whatever, so I won't be here to teach this class anymore. But if you come to the same place at the same time, a new teacher will be here. And so I thought, oh, that's great. And I assumed it would be a new judo teacher. And so you know, a couple of weeks later, after the previous guy left, I turned up, and the new teacher turned out to be a karate teacher, not a judo teacher. So it was still a martial arts class, but obviously, you know, fundamentally different. And I was, oh, fair enough. So I stuck it out for a little while, maybe a year or so, but it just didn't fit. You know, martial arts is very much um, something that, that goes inside and out. And if something doesn't really suit you, it's no fault of the art. It's just about it not being compatible with you, just the same as some people are compatible, some places are. Um... And so because this karate didn't really suit me, I decided to start looking around for something else. And throughout this time, being absolutely addicted to the monkey TV show, the terrible, as it turns out these days, terribly racist <laughs> and sexist 70s yes. Japanese version of the Chinese classic. But I loved that show. And I loved the fighting. And I loved the pole fighting. And I was like, so, so what's that? What, What is it in that show? And realized that that was Kung Fu. That was a Chinese art. So then I went looking for Kung Fu and that. That was that. From that day on, that I discovered one school and then another. And 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 did the
0: did the confidence come with with studying kung fu and studying judo initially? Oh
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's funny. It's one of those. It's not really a dichotomy, but it seems it sort of on the surface. the, The the better you get at fighting, the less you fight, ideally, because most of the time, bullies, whether they're kids in school or whether they're genuine rapists or assault assaulters in the street or whatever else these people they're not looking for a fight or they're not looking for a challenge they're looking for a victim and so they will look around and they will pick the person who seems cowed who seems weakest who seems like the least struggle because all they want is a victim to make them feel good they don't want to actually challenge themselves and of course as you become fitter and stronger and you learn about fighting and you develop some confidence that you could defend yourself if somebody did pick on you then you just naturally appear less like a victim when you're on the street. Um, and so you get bullied less or hassled less or somebody will look at you and go, well, maybe not that guy, I'll look for a little bloke or I'll look for someone who looks scared because that's the, that's what they're after. That's the victim they're looking for, you know? so So definitely, I think, I mean, obviously I'm biased because I run a martial arts academy, so that's my day job, if you like, even though it's all sorts of different times of day and night. But I genuinely think everybody should study martial arts to some degree. Apart from the personal development and those benefits just to have that background of sort of confidence and ability and also because if everybody was a bit more confident and a bit more able to defend themselves then these assholes that go around picking victims would be a lot less likely to do so because there'd be less victims around but yeah it's an easy thing to say but obviously it's a scrambled egg when it comes to details. Now you were involved in in fighting on a mat before cage
0: fighting started, or yeah. MMA sort of took mm. off more so than than cage fighting. Um, what did you learn from that experience that then you've taken and put into your writing these days?
1: Um, well, I, I always, often said if I you know if I'd have uh, if I was ten years younger, I would probably be into MMA because. Um, it really it started gaining notoriety right in the early nineties, ninety one, ninety two. were sort of I think around there were the first of the uh, UFCs, and then it really got popular around about the time I sort of backed off from fighting a lot. But um, I did a lot of fighting on open mat and a lot of fighting under what they call sundial rules, which is um, I mean to put it it's it's sort of uh, kung fu kickboxing full contact competition on an open mat rather than in a ring. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very simplified <laughs> explanation, uh, but the principles is much the same. There's, you don't want there are throws and there are locks and stuff like that to some degree, but you don't actually stay on the ground and grapple like you would in MMA. But other than that, it's very similar. Um, and so through various full contact and semi contact competitions and everything else, um, I just developed and through some less than smart activities on the street because even though I had sort of confidence and training whatever I was also a sort of 18, 20, 21 year old you know male on the streets with something to prove I think everybody is to some degree so yeah various brawls and things throughout life I've always kind of just taken these things in and as a writer the only difference really between people who write and people who don't is that people who write tend to notice what's happening around them and and remember it to use later, whereas other people might notice it and take it on, but they don't really sort of absorb the details in the same way because they don't have this sort of urge to regurgitate them in a new format. In your book, How to Write the Fight Right, Mm. which is almost a guide for those who want
0: to write action scenes, there's a moment where you talk about the fact that, unlike we see in Hollywood films very often and also we read in books, if you stand still, you're going to get hit. Mm. Is that almost a mantra for the way you live your life? Because you're constantly working across genres.
1: <laughs> oh, my wife would like that question. Um, yeah, my wife calls my parenting style, don't stop. <laughs> uh, because, like, she will hang out with our son just in the garden all day. But I'll be like, should we go to the park? Let's go to the shop. What should we do? Let's go to this. Let's do that. Because I don't know. It's just a personality thing. Um so yeah maybe there is something in that um absolutely true for fighting like things i say to my student more than anything else are always related to footwork and i'm always drilling into them that if their stance work and their footwork isn't any good it doesn't matter what else i teach them if they can't get in and out of places they need to be they can't deliver anything else you know and so it is absolutely true this is why boxers do you know, hours of skipping and road work and stuff to be fit and lithe and springy on the balls of their feet so they can move, because movement is the fundamental base of all fighting. So maybe that does sort of feed through into other aspects of my life. I do... I do tend to get bored quickly. I, I'm the sort of person I do tend to work thing. I work quite fast when I do something. I'm not I don't sort of take my time and lounge about. If I've got something to do, I just get on and do it. And I do tend to do one thing and then the next and then the next. I can relax if I decide I'm not going to do anything and I'll chill out and read a book, watch a movie, whatever if I choose to do that but otherwise if I'm doing things I'm doing them and I'm moving on and I get bored kind of quickly so I tend to move on but in terms of genre I also don't really like to be restricted by genre um I'm really keen to mash genres I don't think I've well there's a handful of things that are very specifically one genre like you know there's a handful of sort of short stories for example that are just horror stories um but in general I try to mix and match not even try to it just sort of naturally happens that way mix and match all things there's elements of horror and fantasy and crime and noir and mystery and all those sorts of things and I don't like things being sort of too restricted I like to mix that stuff up and you know my novels are very much about mashing genres and you know that's why we tend to refer to them as supernatural thrillers because they're paced like a thriller they've got sort of action like thrillers but they've got epic quests like fantasy or they've got dark edges you know there's very much horror Edges in some of the uh, scenes and things that happen in those books, and I like that. I don't like being restricted by a genre.
0: How did your world change, though, in 1989, where you went to a bookshop in Aldershot and met a particular <laughs> writer?
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a weird one, and it was really interesting how I had to get him to confirm that as well on Twitter. Yeah, the, I've always been hugely influenced. As much I've, you know, I've read novels and stories for as long as I could read but I've always been very much influenced by uh, comic books and movies as well and I used to regularly buy um, comics and more often and I had a standing order at the comic at the comic store in Aldershot and um, and, one, and I used to go in Saturday morning and just pick up my standing order and hump through the shelves for anything interesting. And one Saturday I went in and there were these two guys sitting behind the desk doing a signing promoting their issue one of their new comic. And it was Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean doing issue one of Sandman. Um, neither of whom I had any idea who they were. You know, not many people really did at that time. Um, McKean, Dave McKean is the guy who did those amazing covers, you know, those sort of mixed media art covers on um, on the Sandman comics. Um, and so to this day I still have my um, original first edition signed number one of Sandman with gold pen signatures of Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean across the cover so I don't know what that's worth and I rediscovered it recently as well which was very exciting because I knew I had it but since moving from England and moving around Australia and that but in sorting through some boxes I found a box with my old comic folders in it and one of them was the initial sort of 20 or so issues of Sandman with that number one signed so yeah so that was pretty special but it's more special now in hindsight than it was at the time. At the time, it was like, oh, okay, cool, yeah, 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 you can sign it, why not? Of course, now, I mean, that's Neil Gaiman. Yes, yeah, that's Neil Gaiman, one
0: of the, the most internationally successful sci-fi fantasy writers.
1: That's it, yeah. I mean, he's the sort of guy with sort of, you know, the sales and profile that we all aspire to, you know? I don't necessarily crave to be as well-known personally as him, but when it comes, you know, Neil Gaiman could sell his toilet paper, like, (laughs) if a a Neil Gaiman book comes out, bang, it shoots to the top of the charts. He has millions of dedicated readers and, you know, as as a writer that's really what we're always chasing is a a large readership to feel like there's a lot of people enjoying what we do, so.
0: And what sort of impact did the Sandman comic have on you at that time?
1: It was hugely influential. I was really, my writing has been influenced probably by a, ha- particularly so, by everything in my life, but particularly by a handful of things. When it comes to short stories and novels, um, Clive Barker has been an enormous influence, um, probably more than anyone else, um, on me as a writer and that mix of fantasy and horror and that sort of dark um, lyrical kind of style. Um, the Great and Secret Show is probably my favorite book of all time. Um, and his short stories, The Books of Blood, are amazing. Um, and beyond that, then stories like Sandman, with that, I love to take um, sort of mythology and legend and remix it and kind of change it up a bit. And with the Alex Kane series, that's very much based on the one hand, is the story of uh, a martial artist, a, you know, a, a pro martial artist who gets caught up in stuff he wants nothing to do with. But the vehicle for that was very deliberately mixing up mythologies and monsters and reinventing them and trying to corrupt them and change them and make something new and different out of them.
0: Well, within that, just to explain, you have the, the fae, you have the mages, you, you have all mm. this dark
1: magic brought That's into it. an MMA world. That's it. And, you know, it. With, and I tried to redo the monsters as well. You know, there's nods towards classic monsters like werewolves and vampires as well as entirely new monsters. Um, and a sort of epic fantasy quest but all of that condensed into what is sort of a 100,000 word thriller effectively with all this kind of magic and craziness going on um, and in many ways a lot of that influence comes from Sandman the way that Gaiman pretty much drew on any number of different mythologies you can imagine um, and pulled them apart in order to rewrite a story based around one character, around, you know, around Morpheus and With um, my previous novels, with the balance duology, that was probably more influenced by that style of game. And initially I've kind of found my own voice a lot more by the time of the Alex Kane series. But with the balance, it was very much deliberately throwing all the gods into one big melting pot. With the idea that there couldn't be only one god, but there could be none. So there has to be many and then using that as a sort of crucible to rewrite those ideas.
0: And this is the series that you originally wrote. You self-published in 2006, is that correct? The Realm yeah, Shift yeah, series? Yeah,
1: this is Realm Shift and Mage Sign are the two novels. They, people ask me if there'll be any more and never say never, but at the moment it's a duology, um, and it's sort of complete as it is. Um, but that Realm Shift marks the beginning of... Um, me sort of deciding that I was actually going to take this writing thing seriously and aim for publication and try to make an actual career out of it rather than just something that I did because I couldn't not do it and I just enjoyed doing it. Um, and when I'd finished Realm Shift, I got, I shopped around, did the whole thing, approached the agents. I got an agent. The agent was a very good Australian agent and she sort of um, took the book around different publishers and it got, Sort of looked at quite closely a couple of times, went to a couple of acquisitions meetings, but never actually made that last hurdle to publication, which was very frustrating, but that's, you know, that's the nature of publishing. But it also sort of confirmed for me that that it was a good book. The agent picked it up, the editors were keen to publish it, and it didn't get through those acquisition meetings, but, you know, that's just you know money marketing timing and everything else you know that you've if it gets that far you know you've got a good book it's not just you saying so there's other people who sort of corroborated that mm.
0: you like to work across different types of storytelling and you know you have a, several collections of short stories you also have a nove- you have novellas you also
1: have novels is there a preference no, not really. I mean, I have one collection of short stories. I've recently, yeah, had Crowshine. That's my um, sort of collected short stories. I've had 70-something short stories published over the years in all kinds of sort of magazines and anthologies and stuff. I've got a few novellas. I'm a really big fan of the novella length. I mean, that's sort of anything for sort of around twenty to 50,000 words, you know, the short novel, which used to be very much in vogue, you know, things like Animal Farm or whatever, these classic novels as they're known many of them are actually novellas Um, I do tend to write sort of tight um, tightly plotted and fast paced things you know the biggest book I've written probably is my first one Realm Shift and that's only sort of 125,000 words Um, whereas a lot of you know like big fat fantasy as we refer to it like the George Martin style big fat fantasy series each of those books is well over 200,000 words sometimes a lot more than that um but they're they're each they is that thing about getting bored. you know they're each different exercises of a similar style. writing a novel and writing a short story at a very base level are fundamentally the same in that you need some sort of beginning, middle, and end, you need characters, you need character development, you need conflict along the way the The principles apply, but beyond that, the sort of style and the method and everything can be quite different, and so I will always write some short stories in between novels if i finish a novel i will never just go straight on to another novel i will inevitably do a few short stories and stuff it's almost in palate cleansing sort of style and once i've done a few short stories i'll then have built up that sort of need and impetus to start getting into bigger stories and i'll get back into another novel um unless of course i'm sort of contracted for things you know there are some things like with the alex kane series i just finished writing obsidian when we sold the trilogy to harper collins based on the first book that they'd read and the synopsis of two and three so I basically had to go straight in and write book three because they wanted it by January and my son was due in October so I was on a tight schedule for it. There's nothing like a deadline to get an author into action. Oh my god yeah especially that one because in many ways because it was the third book of it each one is a sort of a standalone thriller each one is a complete story but it's an overarching theme that goes across all three that makes it very much a trilogy So, in many ways, the third one was the easiest to write in terms of plotting because so much had already been established, I knew where things were going to go, but writing Bound and Obsidian without any particular deadline, I just worked on them and let them happen, whereas I started writing Abduction knowing if I don't have this finished by the end of October when my son is due, I'm going to be in real trouble because trying to finish a novel with a newborn in the house is going to be mental. but thankfully, I, I, it was the first time I'd ever had that strict and that sort of severe a deadline for anything. But thankfully, I sort of rose to it. I don't know if I'd be able to do it with a first book or a standalone book. But to finish the trilogy, I was motivated. Obviously, I just sold a trilogy to HarperCollins apart from anything else. You don't want to blow that um, but, yeah, so that, that was a deadline where I kind of was forced to do But otherwise, if that hadn't have been the case, when I finished Obsidian, there's no question I would have gone and written a few short stories or maybe a novella and then come back to write Abduction. So,
0: Well, Crowshine, the, the collection, has, has a wonderful series of different stories within it of, of all very different genres. And, and something we've talked about offline, which is that there's often a misperception that short stories should have a twist <laughs> in the tale. Yeah. Um, and, and the majority of yours don't. They they are self-contained stories, which are, sort of end on that high point of like, but where's the rest? Where's the rest?
1: Yeah. Well, there's there's two sides to that. I mean, a, there is this perception that short stories should have a twist. A lot of it comes, I mean, I am hugely influenced by Roald Dahl's short stories. They're amazing. But he's also sort of done a bit of a disservice in the whole Tales of the Unexpected thing, where his stories very much do kind of slap you in the face at the end. You know, there's this left turn at the lights right before the end that you're not expecting But it is very, very hard to do that without it just seeming kind of cliche or like the twist, like the whole story is just there for the twist and there's not actually a story. Um, The other side of that is that even though stories don't need to have a twist, they sort of all do in as much as if you get halfway through a story and you can just tell exactly how it's going to end and it does end like that, then it's not very memorable or not very impressive. Whereas the best stories are the ones where oh, I, kept, I had to keep reading, I couldn't put it down, I had to know what happened and I totally didn't expect that ending. It's not a twist because it's not completely, you know, bizarre and unexpected, but it is still utilizing that idea that things won't necessarily go the way you expect and you have to find out what happens next.
0: Well, your most recent novella, The Book Club, is a good example of this, <laughs> um, which starts off essentially as a police procedural. Yeah. And then turns very
1: dark. And, yeah. Well, very odd, I should say. Yeah, weird fiction is probably this sort of cosmic horror in a way. Yeah, it's like mm. very much under that weird fiction umbrella. That one, yeah, that was that was a very deliberate um, sort of choice. I, 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 like I said before, when it comes to mixing genres, I love mixing stuff up, and not just sort of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, but I love crime and noir and mystery and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, and It's kind of, you know, when people have asked, I've often described the book club as, uh, it's a bit like Gone Girl if it went really weird. And that's kind of where it started. I I wanted to play with a missing persons thing that started pretty much straight down the line. You know, this guy's wife doesn't come home from a book club one night. It gets later and later. He worries a bit more. Eventually he calls the police. They start looking into things. There's a slightly questionable in his past about an affair and they're like well maybe she left you and he's like no it's not like that so it's all pretty much SVU stuff you know at the start with these sort of slowly growing hints of weirdness around the edges and that was a very deliberate um, thing I wanted to do where I took something as sort of not necessarily mundane but something as normal if you like as a regular missing person case and just made it weirder and weirder until it just got completely out there by the end and I seem to have succeeded because I've, <laughs> yeah, I've had some interesting feedback on that.
0: Do you think it's important that we have dark fiction to reflect
1: our own lives? Absolutely important. Yeah, I think it's, um, yeah. Um, people ask why um, I write such dark stories, a lot of the stuff is kind of dark fantasy. There's a lot of sort of, sort of consequence and um, sort of comeuppance to certain people, and even to good people. But that's kind of the point because. I think dark fiction is honest. A lot of the time, in the modern world, we're sort of taught to um, expect resolution and happy endings. You know, like, you watch a movie and it ends and everybody's happily ever after. Even if it's a really dark movie um, or a really sort of, you know, sort of brutal movie in some ways, there's usually some closure at the end where people win through. Um, And when you invest in a lot of someone's time in a novel, like, for example... You know, a regular novel that takes eight or ten hours to read, you don't necessarily want it to be so real that everything turns to shit at the end and there's nothing uplifting and people just feel brutalized by a book, um, which I, I tend to do that sometimes in my short fiction. If you take sort of 20 minutes or half an hour of someone's time, then you can just kind of smash them in the face with it a little bit. Um, but I think it's honest because, you know, the world, like I say in The Afterward in Crowshine, like, you know we 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 the gk chesterton quote saying you know we don't tell stories about dragons to know that there are dragons because all kids know there are dragons we tell those stories to know the dragons can be beaten which is a fantastic quote when it comes to storytelling but it's also not entirely true because not all dragons can be beaten you know sometimes the dragons win sometimes there are people left in the aftermath of a monster's win who are just broken and hurt sort of people and we need to we need to accept that that's the case. We need to face that, um, and so a lot of my fiction does deal with those dark themes, where people are left, sort of brutalised and broken by what's happened. But there is also hope in that, in that there are people left, and they're going to go on, and they're going to live, and they're going to try to make something of it. And so, I think that's what dark fiction is for: it's to it's for us to face our fears, to know that we're not always going to have a happy ending, to know that sometimes the monsters are going to win. But even if they're going to take us down, we're going to hold on to humanity. We're going to fight, we're going to stand up, and we're going to survive in some way, even if it's just as a memory.
0: There's a story within Crowshine, which is the shadow of the lonely dead. Yeah. And within that book there, it really tells the story of the um, injustice of the good dying before those more deserving yeah um and there's a line in there in which you the character states we are all five years old when our mothers die and i'm aware that your your mother passed away before your first book was published is that a case of you bleeding onto the page and, and letting people know of that experience of those darkness that we need to be able to cope with
1: yeah definitely um that was one of the hardest stories I've written, I I, I tried to write that story a few times and had false starts because I couldn't it's not that I I wasn't able to sort of face what the story was about, I just couldn't tell it the right way I think and I think it took me a while to develop as a writer well enough to be able to do a good job of that story because it is a very personal one and it won the Australian Shadows Award for Best Short Story that year so um, I think when something comes out personally it does tend to come out good if you give it the time to do so. Um, but injustice um, and unfairness is something that does come across a lot in my work because I'm, I'm the only one left of my family. My I had a brother who was severely disabled and he died when I was 16, he was 18. Uh, my mum died of cancer when I was 35 I think, she was only 62. And less than two years later my dad died of a very similar cancer. Um, and they were all really good people. Um, with rich and interesting lives and they were kind and generous people and they didn't deserve to die nobody deserves to die but then you look around at all the shits in the world doing awful things and living to ripe old ages and even getting away with it in many cases I mean the obvious example is Jimmy Savile who lived to be in his late 80s and died unpunished for all that horrible shit that he did in his life um and that that. um that sort of fundamental unfairness uh, is something that does inform a lot of my work because, you know, nature and life and death are completely arbitrary. Um, you will have someone who just abuses themselves and other people and their body their whole life and they live into their 90s and, and die content. And you'll have someone else who's kind and friendly and nice and supportive and healthy and looks after themselves like my mum who did spent her whole life doing things for other people and she died at 62. And so, yeah. It, it And Shadows of the Lonely Dead was very much the story where I sort of addressed that. And it's kind of a, in some ways, it's a wish fulfillment because the main character kind of has this ability to sort of redress that balance a little bit. Um, and it's it's kind of like a, you know, wouldn't it be great if this was a possibility? But it's also a sort of meditation in a way just on the... Arbitrary, unfair nature of death and how it comes, and
0: it seems to take a, a a very clear view that monsters are real and that monsters are people. Often,
1: yeah. I mean, I think a lot of horror. There's that, you know, it's that classic um, sort of Twilight Zone ideal. You know, turns out the real monster was man. It's it's one of those things that, in some ways, it's a cliche, but equally, it is an absolute truth. I mean whatever you believe or don't believe of the supernatural or anything else it's i love playing in that supernatural sandbox because it removes all boundaries when it comes to creating monsters and magic and situations and worlds beyond this world and everything else you can imagine but when it really comes down to it the the only real monsters any of us in our day-to-day life are likely to actually meet or know about in any way are other people and really that's more than enough when you see all the fucked up stuff that people do to each other and to the world and whatever else we don't actually need monsters we don't need genuine scary beasts because you know people are ridiculous. (laughs)
0: Your character Alex Kane seems to walk between two worlds and it seems to encapsulate a lot of these views that you just expressed now Mm. um, which is that he's someone who can take a proactive stance against the reality of monsters around our world and the level of injustice and he seems to have a level of contained rage which is then brought out as the story in the first book at least within Bound Mm. continues on. Was that a cathartic experience sort of introducing him to the world?
1: Yeah, I suppose it was in some way. A lot of people, because he's a career martial artist, everybody you know is always like, "How much of, how much of that character is you?" Um, and I, I mean, Kane's anger is mine, I guess. Like you know, against that injustice that exists in the world, um, and he's the philosophy that he's developed through his martial arts because the character of Alex Kane in the books is a very successful underground cage fighter. He fights in MMA matches, but not in the big sort of glitzy lights and stuff. He fights in the underground scene where he makes less money, but he's top of his game. He makes plenty to live by and he likes it that way because he's in control and he gets to fight and he doesn't have to face, you know, this sort of modern world of cameras and bright lights. And that's how he likes it. Um, but even though he's in that sort of modern arena of martial arts he's had a very traditional um sort of upbringing through fighting and even though he's cross trained and done many things to make him good in the MMA sort of circuit his primary influence in his life is his sifu his teacher you know sifu is a chinese version of a sensei and throughout the books he remembers the lessons of his sifu and realizes, of course, that, you know, his Sifu's talking about fighting, but he's also talking about life, and these things that apply to a fight apply to just getting through life and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so in many ways, when people ask me if if Cain is a reflection of me, his martial philosophy is very much a reflection of of mine, but really I'm more reflected in his Sifu than in Cain himself because through using, because his Sifu has died and we don't know why yet, and so hopefully if I get to write more in the series um, we can explore that because that's one of the plans if I do get to write more if the Alex Kane series the first three if they're successful enough and I get to write more that's one of the things I want to explore because I know what's going on there Um, but I'm the way I was able to sort of share my martial philosophy as it was taught to me and as i've developed it myself through the words of his sequel into the alex kane character that's kind of where my influence comes so that alex kane as a person is very different to me he's a control freak and i'm a control freak i think that's probably fair enough to say Uh, but beyond that he's a very different character um i hope so anyway because he can be sort of pretty petty and whiny sometimes um, within reason, I mean, his life gets fucked up in the worst possible way, and he wants nothing to do with it. And all he does is try to not get involved. And the harder he tries, the deeper he gets pulled in. So you know, he, he feels very much like an '80s action hero in that sense. All he wants to do is go home. Yeah, yeah. He all he wants He's got his life is fine. He's got his house outside the city. He makes plenty of money. His house will be paid off in no time. You know, he gets to fight. That's what he loves to do. He comes to these matches, and then he goes home, and everything's fine. He He's happy with his life he doesn't want anything else and he gets dragged on this massive international adventure and throughout the whole series really but especially through the first book he's like i just don't want this just i just want to be left alone let me go home and of course he can't and the the more he tries to fight his way out the more entangled he gets with other things and the more responsibility he gets dumped on him and yeah, the poor lad. Things just keep getting worse and worse for him.
0: <laughs> Is he the character you've enjoyed the most? Bring to life. I mean, you you've, you co-author with um with others in regards to the Jake Crowley series, and
1: I write with David Wood. Yeah, I've um I've written three novels with David Wood, two Jake Crowley books, and um a, a monster novel called Primordial. Um, but in terms of the the books that are that are entirely mine, I've written more of Alex Kane than any any other character because there's there's three novels now in that series and hopefully there may be more um i don't know it's hard you can't really pick a favorite in many ways because you know it's like picking a favorite child they're they're all very different you know oh, I, we all know we have a favorite child well, oh well i do because i've only got one child <laughs> but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but you know within realm shift and mage sign the main character is isaiah and he has a partner called petra and i love both of those characters and you know if the opportunity comes up if the ideas come up i'd like to write more of those um, there's definitely more of the Alex Kane story to tell um, and I deliberately left some threads hanging at the end of Abduction even though the overall overall story of that trilogy is complete. They deliberately left a few things that I want to follow up further um, and I know what the next book will be about if I get a chance to write it. So in some ways I suppose he's the character... See, the, the book came about originally because I started getting this reputation for writing good fight scenes within the Balance duology and within other things. People said you write great fight scenes, and it's like, well, I've you know had fights all my life. I know what that is, and so that's how Write the Fight Right came about because somebody asked me to run a workshop at a convention to help writers understand writing, and then I ended up doing that workshop a whole bunch of times, and then people kept saying, "Is there something we can read that we can take away?" and, and Write the Fight Right isn't. This, I mean, it's only available as an ebook, but it's only about. I think about 15,000 words. It's like a very long essay, really, more than a in-depth book. And it's very much an overview to give people things to think about and to work on when they want to sort of improve their fight and action scenes. And then it got to the point where I was like, well, you know, this is the reputation I've got. This is something that I'm good at. Maybe I should, instead of writing stories with characters who can fight, maybe I should write a story about a character who is first and foremost a fighter, like actually a career martial artist And then build a story around that. So the the sort of character of Alex Kane was growing in my mind for a while. And then the rest of the plot, books and stories tend to come together for me. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen. You have ideas all the time. A story is a good combination of ideas, you know, constructed well. And normally when two or three ideas kind of clash together and, and they catalyze into something else, I realize then that that's a book. And it was when this idea of the Alex Kane character sort of catalyzed with my idea of writing a sort of big, fat fantasy quest in a tight, modern, urban thriller framework. Um, I was like, actually, that character could be the perfect character for writing that story. And I started thinking more about that story, and that kind of came together. So... I suppose he's not necessarily a favorite character, but he's probably the character that reflects more of my life and my influences in writing than anything else thus far. Mm -hmm. But I've also got a couple of new novels that aren't out yet, um, new standalone novels, um, that are very different and don't include much fighting at all. But you, you talked earlier about Shadows of the Lonely Dead. I've just finished, I think... You never really know when the book's finished. <laughs> I think it's ready for submission, but I've just finished a book that features the main character from that story, Shadows of the Lonely Dead. The girl from that character is this, is the other lead character in a new novel, so I've taken those ideas and expanded them right out into a into a novel length. And that's sort of like... Um, it's mainly focused around this character called Matt McLeod, who's a Scotsman who's moved down to London with an incredible weight of guilt and a very dark ability. And during the course of the story, he bumps into... Amy Cavendish, who's the lead character from Shadows of the Lonely Dead. So they end up together. And it's sort of it's like an it's like a London gangster. It's like layer cake with really dark, weird, supernatural stuff going on, like Lock talk and Lockstock and lock two stock smoking and spells. <laughs> um, yeah, and so and so I really enjoyed some of the characters in that, and I really enjoyed getting to flesh out that character from Shadows of the Lonely Dead a lot more because the short story was very much about the injustice of death and blah blah blah. And so it was really good to be able to take that character and that idea and flesh it out that much more and make the character of Amy much more real on the page. Obviously with a novel you have so much more yeah, room you, to you work give character her a, development. A greater life and a greater yeah, purpose. Yeah. So yeah. That's that moment. It. And then, you know, she's at the end of Shadows of the Lonely Dead, she's with this guy in Sydney and then at the start of the the novel, um, she's actually moved from Sydney to London and she's working in a new palliative care centre in London and that, you know, that's when Her life changes and she meets other people. So, yeah, it's uh, very hard to pick really who is favourite in terms of character or story. How important
0: is it for you to see women represented with strength?
1: Enormously. Um, Yeah, I, I really don't... I don't like that whole thing with, oh, you know, why do you write strong women? You know, George, I think it was George Martin who, you know, said, Oh, I was under the impression, I was just under the impression that women were people. And I'm very much along that front. I've always had strong women in my life. My wife is a very sort of strong, physically, but also sort of, you know, emotionally strong person. And my wife, my mother was a very strong person as well. And um, I've never. I've never grown up, and I guess this is thanks to my upbringing from my parents and everything else, but I've never grown up thinking of women as in any way lesser or um, subservient or anything like that. I've always sort of just had this idea that all people are equal, um, which they are, and it it kind of mystifies me that other people think differently to that. Um, But it's very important in my work to make sure that I'm not just writing about straight white males, because that's the prevalent western literature and you know i can't i make a point of including women in my stories because i'm surrounded by women they're 50 percent of our population in the same way that i include um other races and sexualities in in my stories as well um and i don't write their stories i don't write about being a woman or i don't write about being gay or those things that i don't have direct experience about but those people are very much in my stories Um, and I just try to write strong and interesting characters so whether they're men or women or whatever race or sexuality or anything else I want to write about strong interesting but flawed characters and the conflicts they face Um, and I don't really draw any distinction in terms of gender or anything else I do make a point of having people um, read things for me and double check that I haven't made any henas errors on things. Uh, my best beta readers are women, so I tend to get pulled up every once in a while if I write something that's kind of, you know, sort of unconsciously sexist in some way or something, they're like, you know, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. A, a moment of the male gaze. Or yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, these things come up sometimes. And, it, and over the years, I've learned a lot by doing that, which is interesting as well, because you learn about your own sort of unrecognized biases. Um, and I wrote a story, you know, my whole... Well, almost my whole adult life has been surrounded by Chinese culture and you know, I spent six days a week in Chinatown in Sydney for ten years and training and stuff like that so I have a very good understanding of Chinese culture but I wrote a story with, with two Chinese leads and I made a point of sending it to a couple of my Chinese mates and said can you read and make sure I haven't messed up and nothing in the story was about being Chinese but it was about something that happened in China and came to Australia and the characters were Chinese and so it was reflected in the culture as I knew it Um, And I made a point of having a couple of Chinese friends read it and just say, you know, just I'm not making just make sure I'm not doing anything sort of wrong here or culturally insensitive. And they were down with it. And that was fine. So I think it's important to write about everything in the world that is around you. And that includes everybody. Uh, Nothing. Nothing is off limits either. As far as I'm concerned, I don't think there's anything we're not allowed to write about. But you absolutely must treat everything you write about with respect and get it right and be prepared to suck up the consequences if you fuck it up and, you know, try to learn from it. And, you know, don't tell a story that it would be better told by someone else if you, you know, if someone else wants to tell that story. So, you know, this is a big, messy melting pot of things. But, yeah, having respect for being as, as diverse and inclusive as you can and respecting all that diversity, I think, is basically enough.
0: Alan, I couldn't think of a better place to end our conversation today. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for your time today. And um, we look forward to everything that is yet to be
1: published in the year ahead. Well, thank you very much. It's been very interesting to chat to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alan. Cheers.
0: And you can find Alan Baxter's books online and in stores. Also, look for him on social media. He is a mean fiend on Twitter. And you can, of course... Leave me some feedback on iTunes. That would be greatly appreciated. And also find me at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thanks for listening.